0: Today's episode of Little Red Village is the second half of the conversation that John and I had with entertainer and master storyteller Leslie Zemeckis, a best-selling author, burlesque historian, and a critically acclaimed documentary filmmaker. Leslie is intimately knowledgeable about the labor of love that filmmaking and book writing are. In this episode, we'll hear more about her mentorship program, Stories Matter which pairs young women with seasoned professionals to everyone's benefit. From a young age, Leslie felt a connection to clothing and costume, which eventually led to her becoming a well-known expert on the history of burlesque, one of the more fascinating subsections of fashion history. As an actress, Leslie understands the power clothing has to transform a performer, Not just the exterior, but the way a great costume can change the way an actor feels or allow them to literally step into the shoes of the person they are portraying on stage or screen. As a person, Leslie knows how everyday apparel can be like armor, allowing a person to do the brave things when they otherwise might feel intimidated. We'll talk about the importance of costuming in TV and film and get some great recommendations. As always, we talk about books. And in addition to her her own vital histories, Leslie has some wonderful titles to suggest, as well as some truly insightful advice for young people who dream about creating for themselves the type of career that Leslie has carved out for herself.
1: Can you describe this relationship, the realities of the work, and what you said previously about burlesque? I'm seeing a little bit of a... Connection there, maybe in the if it is behind the work and the mind frame. Perhaps the women who did these things historically needed how they needed to be prepared. And I'm curious, do you see a through line in your work?
2: Yeah, I, absolutely. They're they're absolutely, for a better word, outcasts, very much marginalized. To be a circus performer, even though some of them were huge stars and everybody at a certain point in America knew who they were. You know, I I don't think it was thought very highly of. It certainly isn't thought highly of today, which is a shame. People don't look at the actual history of the circus and how it entertained and it brought so much and educated to these small towns. Absolutely nothing. But there was always one woman in my burlesque thing says it the most, but I think it goes for everything that I'm drawn to. It's like it's us and them. And they knew how people looked at them and they stayed in there. Community and did what they wanted to do with their lives. You know, I mean, and none of them were, you know, working in a circus is not an easy life. I mean, you're you're on your road and you're performing. You know, Mabel's in there cleaning out their cages. She's cutting up meat for them. She's taking care of them if they're hurt. You know, it's not just like, oh, okay, I'm putting on my fancy suit. and I'm walking in. Here's my show. Somebody else take care of this. Because there's also not that much money involved, even though they can make a good living. You know, like she's doing it and they, they, all of the, everybody that I spoke to that had worked with cats, it was all about the love, you
3: know. Right. They're not just performer, they're performer caretaker. Yeah. You know, there, there seems to be that, that bifurcation of the role as well.
2: Right. But it's all, you know, all stigmatized, you know, just and labeled, oh, they're strippers or they're circus people or they're freaks or whatever.
1: Now those labels, I mean, they haunt all of us. And they haunt anyone who works in a particular specialty field. We spoke last season with a costume designer who does like uh, circus specifically, actually. And one of the things we discussed with her was the relationship between safety gear, like for firefighters or whatever, and circus. Because circus performers have to have like the utmost best. It's like you're saying, they're going into the cage with the tiger and there's so much... There's so much there there I guess
2: nowadays. Mabel when she was an old lady would go yeah. to the cage with a big white hat and her the last man that she mentored he's like she can't see it. you know her peripheral vision and she's old. Oh my God. Like what does she oh do man, with man. the big right. Right. I also love about history that of course is is gone they could reinvent themselves. They any name they want to. I mean, I looked at documents and Lily had documents signed, Lily Sincere, which wasn't her name, or they were misspelled. Or you could just say, oh, you know, I'm Susie Q. That's who I am now. And nobody would know different. you could say I came from here, which makes it harder in the research, but I know how to do all that. You could create your own character. You could escape your path.
1: And with social media in 2023 and everything, 24-hour news cycle, yeah, that's that's relatively impossible unless you have a really (laughs) great PR (laughs) something set up. But it's interesting, I guess, the women that we're talking about now in the past and the women who now in 2023 are navigating similar, or at least in terms of our, our era, similar situations. They're survivors—the women who are not afraid to go into the tiger cage with no peripheral vision and the kind of bravery that requires the kind of self-assuredness, the kind of confidence in self. I feel like maybe those ladies get that credit for having that. They're just survivors, or they're just—and you know, that's unfair to minimize anyone by a single title. Which is one of the reasons we think your work is so fascinating because you're really healing back the various layers that allow a person to feel that confidence or to be willing or excited about doing something either dangerous or perhaps you know frowned upon by culture
2: now you know, you, Stigmatized. you live your life and it's like whatever they're saying out there is what they're saying I got my tires here or I'm on my vaudeville show here I've got my you know dance think- that's there it's like
1: admirable I mean I, I have this whole theory about audacity and I really wish that it was more possible for women to kind of embrace that and to expect and to ask and to assume because are not always given the same space
2: right well I you know we talked about you know I've got a mentoring group and I always discuss with the girls I was like you know how are you bold and bold is 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 Different for everybody, but but can you be a little more bold? Can your character be a little more bold? Can you just, you know, just look at the word bold and what that means to you? And can you embrace and bring some of that? Well, I think it brings you. And it oh, doesn't my. have to be like, oh, okay, now all of a sudden I'm walking around with feathers on my head. The bold too could just be walking in the room and looking somebody in the eye.
1: And for plenty of people, that absolutely is. I'm thrilled that you mentioned this. And for our listeners, Leslie's program is called Stories Matter, and we will include information in our show notes about it. But Leslie, would you just give us a you know breakdown? What is Stories Matter? Yeah,
2: it's for young female writers between like 18 and 32, or, you know, people interested. We meet via Zoom, and I introduce them in a simple way that they, they're all... Most of them are in college, but not theory, not arc, not all these words. But it's like, what is the story about in simple ways? And then I pair them up with uh, professional, many best-selling New York Times authors who pop in and they let them know their process. And I think it really helps giving that knowledge to the girls think, oh, there's, there's only one way to do it. You have to do it this way. You have to write it out like this. Everybody's all over the place. They're very diverse authors. They write different things, all very successful, all have been so generous to give up their time. And I had first, I thought about this pre-pandemic, about doing something like this, because I never had a mentor. I think mentoring is so important. And so I went to the director of the Santa Barbara International Film Festival, and he's like, oh, my God, I'm sponsoring you. This is going to happen. And it was supposed to be in person. I envisioned like a Three day but this is actually better than the pandemic happened actually better because now I've got like this next session somebody from Alabama and Hawaii and it's not just Santa Barbara anymore and I think it's it's just more doable you know to like spend a couple hours on zoom an author from wherever can just pop in for a half hour and then we work on writing and then with magazine which is a big women's magazine online, they will publish their stories at the end of the session. I
3: love it's that. Wonderful. That is amazing.
2: So they get, you know, so out of it, you know, you you know, as long as you do the work and the work is good, you will be a published author from this.
1: And you said just a second ago that you did not have a great experience or maybe any mentoring experience. And we've been but, like, trying to talk the with
2: teachers us. that look that I remember, but nobody you know, I've had wonderful acting teachers, master actors who I would call mentors, but not in a really formal sense of like, hey, how do I do this? Nobody ever like offered, you know, are you having a hard time? Here's here's the steps of what you can do, and especially in a group forum where you can see where other people are doing and what, what their questions are. Like, I don't know why we don't do it more.
1: I don't either. We've been asking all of our guests this season about this type of experience because Jonathan and I both really believe that both parties get a lot out of a mentorship relationship so
2: much I learned so much and I, and I enjoy it and it really helps the community it really
1: helps everyone's work
2: yeah uh, I mean they come to me with stuff that I'm not reading or quotes or I mean because we always are sharing stuff and it's like fantastic
3: I mean, also as a writer, I feel like it's so easy for writing to be or feel like this very solitary experience. And this type of group setting and group sharing is so important, I think, especially for writers, because it's just so easy to get tunnel vision within what you're working on. And until you dialogue with other writers, you won't learn what other people's process is like. And it can be transformative when you learn how someone else breaks down the process that is writing and informs your process moving forward i think that's so valuable
2: yeah that you can learn that like whatever your process ends up being that's fun. there's no like you gotta you gotta do this path you gotta do this checklist
3: exactly
1: well and that makes problems that seem unsurmountable or issues that seem impossible all of a sudden there's a chance for success for, to move past it to
2: and sometimes and, just, you know, I really, you know, I know you have to, especially as writing, you have to have all this knowledge, like how a story gets put together, blah, blah, blah. But sometimes you forget, like, what is it about? And what are you trying to do? And what do you want your audience to feel at the end of it? Just have that drive you. And then, of course, the arc and the da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. da, 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 da that will come. But it's like, you've got to grasp onto something super simple. What's this film about? What's this? What do you want to accomplish?
1: Is there a particular story you could share with us about Stories Matter, like a success story or a particular anecdote you're proud of?
2: Well, I mean, one one girl, Anna, and I love to stay in touch with them, from a past session just emailed me that a publisher was interested in her child's book, children's book, which is good. I know some are doing singing now. They're writing songs seen a couple on Instagram, doing film. So it's great. They're
1: just, and that has to feel wonderful to see people who you've known and worked with and worked to help be successful and find their voice and find their creative outlets and ways. That
2: it's like, well, what you're interested in is good enough. I mean, there's not been one of my films that anybody wanted to do. And the first one was on Showtime. The second one debuted on Netflix at number five. I mean. They've all found distributors. They've all been award-winning. Nobody wanted to do these films. You just have to, I just had belief in them. It's like, these are interesting subjects and that's what I'm going to do.
3: Amen to that.
1: And it takes a certain kind of confidence and a certain self-actualization because I really do think there are machines, intentional or otherwise, in place. There are systems in place that, you know, say this is good And sellable and whatever, and then this is not. And we need to make some adjustments to that. And I think a lot of that has to do with the stories about women or from women's experiences. Or and I think that writing, which is such an emotional experience, both for the writer and then the person reading it, is a really excellent way to do that. Whether that writing becomes a screenplay or a film or a book or a magazine article or whatever else, I think that one of the magical things about writing is that it forces a reader into someone else's shoes and see that other person's perspective in a way that you might not, if you just, you know, read a news
2: article about. And there's so many outlets nowadays for, you know, I always want the most eyes on my stuff. So I always aim for like you know the highest place I can place my, you know, films and everything, but there's many outlets that you can get your work. You don't have to wait for somebody to, to say it's okay. There's, there's places to get your work out there.
3: That's the a great Internet. piece of advice. I think, I think too often people worry that they don't know how to have their work be seen, but we live in an unprecedented age of, unprecedented age of exposure for oh, big yeah, and small no outlets loads. to see things.
2: There's so many venues. It's just, it's insane. Yeah. There's an egalitarian kind of aspect to that.
1: in the. If you put in the work and you really do the hard, hard, you know, the actual hours, the labor itself, there are a lot more chances maybe now more than any other time in history that you can have those stories be heard. And
2: and they, they can live someplace, you know, even if it's like you just have your own YouTube channel, it's like it's living there. You've created that. It's living there. People can go to it. You can try and drive people there or whatever it is. Said YouTube, there's there's many places, but that's why I think you have to find what interests you because it's your time and your hours and your and your money that that does all this. You better like the story that you're creating, otherwise, people, you know, it's so funny after my for last film, you know, you should interview World War Two vets, and I'm like, I should. <laughs> I'm not saying it's not worthy of a okay one me mm-hmm. and, right thank you well, that's, the perfect. perspective's
1: already been discussed right that perspective we have a yeah at least a common understanding I mean what? we all are the victims like <laughs> very well intentioned <laughs> but unsolicited oh unsolicited
3: to that end you know Would you share with us and our audience for any young people who are listening that want to write, direct, produce their own documentaries or write their own book-length nonfiction projects, what recommendations do you have for them to do the work, the type of work that you do one day, if that's their interest, whether it's a specific kind of education, certification, or tips for building a resume and the experiences that would make doing that more realistic what advice would you have for someone who's sitting listening to this podcast and wants to start down the documentarian road
2: okay, well everybody's got a film you can just start filming you can film and edit on your phone you can learn you know you can like grab a friend and say let's figure this out or, or grab somebody and make them be your mentor if you can if you have if you're lucky enough to to get into a some kind of a good college program, of course that, or a trade or whatever, but there's just so many opportunities. You could go yourself to a student film and say, I just want to help, I just want to observe, what can I do? And just start learning and asking questions. I mean the information's out there. But you don't have to wait for any certain way to do something to invite you. Just you could start creating right now what interests you.
3: I love that we we often, in the course of these interviews, get similar advice and and I always say, you know you have to start where you are, yeah, because that's usually the best pla- best place to begin,
2: yeah, and you know it's it's great also not coming if you don't exactly know what you're doing and you're just figuring it out, you can stumble upon something really awesome,
3: oh yeah, absolutely, completely like by accident, and I'm sure yeah. That's how the little red dress happened. It was not intentional. <laughs> just kind of came together one day after a conversation during fashion week in a studio with a client. You never yeah. know where where when the lightning bolt strikes, you know? And so you gotta be open to it. That's I think another another part. Is be open to, to it striking at any moment.
2: Yeah, just be looking for it. Be curious, like read. I mean, people just don't read enough. There's just read, read, read.
3: Amen. Read everything.
2: Well, I think starting
1: sometimes is the hardest part, just like that paralysis of what to do. And I've learned in my own experience that it's way, way easier to edit than it is to actually write. And what gets on the page at first is not ultimately very consequential. But just the process of filling it in allows you to make some choices, make some decisions, narrow your scope, figure out what it is that you want. And I think what you said about just don't wait. I think that's so important because judging whether or not your own ideas are good or bad is kind of useless, especially if you're young, especially if you're starting. And being brave enough to put them down and try to flush them out. I
2: mean, you look at it, you make this little film about whatever. Like I've got Barbie dolls here, and like you look at it I'm like, oh my god, this is such. Like, okay, but what? But why is it like such? Shit? Oh, because maybe I had the. The camera should have been here. I really needed to put some light there. I should have taken more time. I should have asked somebody to help me. You know, it's like, just figure it out to make it better. It's all Exactly.
3: Everything. Yes. I always say the phrase, it's like, you just got to put in the reps, you know, it's like building a muscle, it's like your creative muscle and you, you have to put in the reps in order to get the results. And sometimes you go to the gym and maybe it's not the best workout, but you still went and you still did something versus those days where you go and you absolutely kill it. And you feel like, wow, I really did a lot. And maybe, you know, the writing equivalent is I busted out three chapters today and they both, they, they're they great. Like, I'm so happy with them. And the key is just getting started and not being scared of that blank page or since I'm in a painting studio at the moment. The blank canvas. I have that all the time with paintings. Like blank canvas paralysis is a thing. Sometimes you just got to slap something on it, even if it's not going to end up in the end result
1: yeah well unless you said something about and i just lost my train of thought i apologize mistakes teach and i think one of the things you just said about all of the things that could go wrong you might look at a project and hate this hate that hate whatever else it teaches you what you do and don't like and why you do and don't like it and those things are important it prevents you from making the same mistakes over again and
2: my personal those, in film especially you can use some of those mistakes like, there was times especially the first we did not have a, a a proper dp so we were really forgiven you know the reviews were really through the roof amazing and we're just like Whoa, well, we dodged a bullet because i remember i shot that one and that was not very clear whatever it kind of was fine because because it was or less matter the way i, I crafted the film together can still use some of those mistakes or the things that aren't perfect especially in film there's there's just ways in editing that you can do stuff
3: the magic of posts
1: yeah no mistakes can be useful generally i swear there's if you don't know what you want or you don't have an answer to a question or you have an open-ended query, problem, issue, whatever, being able to cross things off can be a major step towards figuring out what does work or what does ring true to a person personally. And I don't know, I think we get very caught up in this very curated world we're in right now with everything being, you know, first shot perfect or Instagram, you know, ready but I also think that people like seeing behind the scenes. It humanizes us to show the less than perfect parts. And I think, I don't know, I want, I want connections between people. And I think that all perfect veneer all the time, you know. inhibits that. Yeah, it ostracizes more than it connects.
2: Well, one of the biggest things I, I you know, besides this bold that I say to the girls, like, especially in writing, you need your community need that person that you're going to text every day and go oh I don't feel like writing or oh this is crap or help me I have like a a handful of people and and I'm gathering new ones and it's like you have to have that community you've got to give and and you've got to take from them you know I was just working with somebody today I was like "I'm, I'm doing this pitch help me with some words you know, or oh my God, I got rejected again, or who should I, what about age? And so this, I mean, you just need all those conversations. You have to build
3: your community. Absolutely. I mean, that's why we're called Little Red Village, because it, it does take a village. And I think creatives thrive best in community, whether it's writing, filmmaking, painting, singing. I, I don't really personally care what it is. I think all creatives thrive best in some form of community.
2: And that's
1: the way to, to learn, to be vulnerable. Absolutely. Absolutely.
3: And speaking of community, but in the realm of recognition, earlier this year, Leslie, you were honored with the Ellis Island Medal of Honor, in part for, quote, sharing and preserving stories of women who were once marginalized and stigmatized. However, due to your work, these women are now celebrated for their independence and personal agency. What is it like to win one of our nation's most prestigious awards, especially for work that means so much for you personally?
2: You know, it just shows you. You know, to everybody that was like that, I went to and said, "Oh, I'm going to do this for less. <laughs> you want to produce it? Do you want to give me money?" Well, that's interesting. I'll come back when it's done. You know, it's like, yeah, <laughs> and it's not for me. I just want to show people these stories. You know, right. right? Yeah, it's like, don't I don't need people to say I'm great. I know my work's good, but I need them to to hear the stories, and so. To have it be a, a different part of the conversation, maybe a little bit. that burlesque isn't just, you know, every time I said I was doing burlesque, they're like, oh, they were really prostitutes, right? I was like, no, they really weren't. And so, to like, to, you know, to just bring a little light back into uh, a misunderstanding is
1: nice. Storytelling is so important. I mean, like, since the dawn of times, since the beginning of humanity, I mean, it's been a tool as much as it has been an entertainment. and. One of my favorite genres, I know Jonathan feels the same way, like nonfiction that's told in such a way that it feels like entertainment, edutainment, I think of the cult or whatever, the word. it's really helpful. And again, I think I said this earlier, it helps build empathy, being able to see somebody as a person, being able to have at least an idea of what it's like to be in their head or what their experience was like. I... These women were so much more than any one thing. No one is any one thing. And that's... I so- hope you're very proud of the work. I think it's, it's excellent. And I'm very happy to know that it's being celebrated. And hopefully the people who, you know, come back after are now rethinking their positions and will either support your or someone else's, you know, similar project one day. Maybe they'll be
3: more more brave. Yes, yeah, absolutely. This brings me to my favorite question that I love asking everyone, guest or not, even in general. I've harassed people at coffee shops asking this question, what is your earliest or most impactful fashion memory? And by that, I mean, when's the first time you can remember realizing the impact of fashion, whether it was... You know, for me, it was my mother's Dior sunglasses that she wore while she would go for radiation and chemo or my leg braces and covering the AFO braces with like tall colored socks to match my outfits. because I felt like that was helping me armor myself up for kids who were less than kind back in the day. And so it was a source of empowerment. What was that? What was that like for you? Do you have a similar early fashion memory where you remember well, the impact of
2: fashion? Sad. I can remember my clothes look like in my drawer and I must have been like three or four there's certain outfits I remember I remember probably my my one of my favorite gifts was a box of hats Hmm. and I I don't know who gave it to me but they were all just different kinds of hats and I just played with those things forever and I'm like such a hat freak I did one on earlier but it needed to be adjusted so I took it off for this so I'm bareheaded, but usually I have a hat on my yeah, I love fashion. So, like the box, was it like
1: decorative hats, like all different? Like I, mean, types.
2: I don't, I don't really remember what each one looked like. I just know that there were a bunch of different ones. There was some white one, and I just remember loving it.
3: Almost like a dress up, like a, when kids would play dress up, like a box of clothes, but it was a box of hats.
2: Yeah.
3: Oh, I love that. I
1: know it's, it's wonderful. Yeah, random. Yeah, but you put something on and you if you like it and you feel good about it it affects the way you feel about yourself like like. a
2: bonnet an old-fashioned bonnet or something i don't know
1: it's wonderful though i mean I, i think of these ladies the burlesque ladies or women from your other work and how the clothing that they wore as impressive as i think it is from like a construction or historical costume standpoint like it must have felt like i don't know either protection armor it must have felt like Layer, something.
2: And very like blingy, and I wish I had something in there, but I just don't think I do. You know, just it's like almost like here, you're gonna see me. I'm all full of sparkles.
1: Right, but at at the same time, also projecting an image that might protect the woman wearing it. I don't know how to explain this.
2: Yeah, well, that's like, you know, when we put on makeup, I think it's it's like, I'm putting on my, this is who I am.
1: Yeah, and it's covering up whatever yeah, i think it's really maybe impossible to separate clothing from the era or context in which it was worn and in the in this context i think of you know the clothing is being interesting for
3: you know again the
1: construction the design the whatever but it's also it's a tool at the same time and my favorite thing in the whole world is when utility and aesthetics like combine and the fact the aesthetic is part of the utility is makes it better makes it more useful makes it a you know and it's a very small <laughs> sliver of venn diagram it's one of those places i'd love to live and i can see how for less costume or something on stage or on screen could fit in that in that perfect place so i don't know it's it's lovely we also always want to ask for book recommendations so would you give us it doesn't have to do anything particular but they're a for fashion besides your own because we will absolutely be providing that information
3: i mean we do i do do love a fashion book recommendation so
2: many good fashion, books in there, but i feel that i love this charles james it's the
1: best book oh my gosh i have that one you just
2: live in all those clothes like you know you want to look like that or i do i shouldn't say we i mean it's like
1: no, we, you're right. <laughs> and just that cover illustration, I think it's Crystal oh. Beaton or the photograph. Oh.
2: And then my other one that I like is Gowns by Adrian. Oh, yeah. You know, yes. Another. You just think, God, can I, can I, oh, look what I opened up right up to. Ah! Yeah. Perfect. Absolutely
1: perfect. <gasps> but just oh. you now. Now, Adrian is such a fascinating figure, too. I mean, and he had some stage costumes. Yeah, no. Jonathan and I are the nice way to say it. I'm trying to think of the nice word. These conversations are lovely for many reasons, but they are not lovely for the
3: book purchase. What typically happens is that after our podcast interviews, Rachel and I end up scurrying into <laughs> Amazon or somewhere else to oh, pick up what? a book. So I could yeah. never
1: have books. I need all of books, literally.
3: All I them. The insatiable book obsession never ends, it's true.
1: So along the same lines, last question here, is there a particular film or miniseries made for TV, whatever, that has costumes that particularly speak to you?
2: Well, one that I love, as I look at all my leopard at my house, is uh, Sunset Boulevard. Which one? Glorious. Sunset Boulevard, glorious one.
1: Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Just Is there a particular version or year?
2: Well, I think they did that
3: in the 50s. Yeah, Sunset Boulevard. Classic May West.
2: No, Gloria Swanson.
1: Sorry, that was what I was trying that's to right, get at. Right. I just know that there's so many different versions of it.
2: the asked. film. I know. May West.
3: That's right, that's right, that's right, that's right.
2: Which you can't like picture it actually being May West. Yeah. Maybe if you hadn't have seen Gloria Swanson in it, but you know, she was so great.
3: The problem with an iconic role, then it's hard to... Picture someone else doing something. Would you tell us
1: what it is about the look of all of that that really speaks to you? Is it related that to the
2: together? Leopard, her little cigarette thing. You know
3: when she. Oh, the cigarette holder. Hold yeah.
2: No, oh, I mean,
3: come on. So, A total vibe. Oh.
2: Yeah, I think she's got turbans and stuff.
3: As an avid turban wearer myself, I, I love them.
1: I do too, Leslie. This has been so wonderful. We are so thrilled that you were able to make some time for us and. Talk to us about your incredible body of work. It was just so much fun.
3: Really. Yes, thank you so much, Leslie. Thank you. Thank you so much to our guest today, Leslie. We are happy to have you and we are so excited to get this episode out to our listeners so that they can learn more about you, your ethos, and your amazing work. Thank you for joining us on Little Red Billy. Wow. Any writers listening definitely should have been taking notes. What a great part two with Leslie. As always, it's time for footnotes. First up, we have vaudeville. Some say the term vaudeville comes from the French vaudeville, de ville, meaning voice of the city. And I kind of like that because this form of entertainment is really like a variety show. Imagine back in the 1800s when it started. If you didn't live in the city, then a show like this would be the only sort of taste of that kind of eclectic entertainment you would get. It was typically full of popular musicians, singers, dancers, comedians, trained animals, magicians, ventriloquists, strongmen, female and male impersonators, acrobats, clowns, illustrated songs, jugglers, one-act plays, scenes from lager plays, athletes, lecturing celebrities, minstrels, and films. By the way, a vaudeville performer is often referred to as a vaudevillian. Now on to our next footnote a director of photography, or DP, which Leslie mentioned she was on some of her earlier films. Filmmaking is full of all kinds of roles and titles, and a lot of people are unfamiliar with some of them, or they may seem very similar to each other, so a little explanation might help. A director of photography is mostly on set, ensuring that the planning and concepts approved by a cinematographer and other team members are well executed. It means that they understand the creative vision in order to lead the photography sessions on set by guiding the camera, guiding the lighting, helping the grip teams uh, achieve the visual objectives that are laid out in the planning stages. And for our last footnote, we have Charles James. When we asked Leslie for her book recommendation, she mentioned and showed an amazing book that both she and Rachel have on this designer. But who was he? Charles James, the American Couturier, was born in 1906 in Surrey, England, to an army officer and a wealthy Chicago socialite. When he opened a millinery shop in Chicago in 1926, he actually did it under the name Charles Boucheron, because Dad refused to let him use the family name. Thus... Even when he was barely 22, a pattern had been set. James would find a source for borrowing money and quickly move on, usually hounded by creditors, and having offended those best in a position to help him. Best known for his flamboyant evening wear, James also designed beautiful coats and the first sports bra for heiress Mary Hecht, the niece of Gertrude Stein. Problems with money, of course, hounded him throughout his career, with his vision for branding and licensing being notably prescient. But. He was constantly on the verge of bankruptcy and was accused of chicanery in financial matters. He was also very litigious. Uh, he was no stranger to the courtroom. He was known to file lawsuits that were often very obviously frivolous, and in fact, he wasted huge, huge sums of money this way. And many believe, ultimately, that is what ruined him despite his phenomenal talent for technical construction. That's all of our footnotes for today. Thank you so much for joining us here at Little Red Village for our episodes with Leslie Zemeckis, the amazing creator, filmmaker, and burlesque expert. Make sure that you are always tuning in every other week for a new episode here at Little Red Village. And remember, fashion is for everyone.